house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. All right, thank you. You may be seated. So I'm uh, Tim Barker. I'm one of the pastors here uh, living in Melrose, and uh, I'm delighted to open the word with you this morning. Uh, This is one of those points in our service when we spend about the next 20 to 30 minutes sort of working through a specific text of scripture. And what we believe is that God of the universe has worked through human authors to put together the text that we read today. And as we come together, God has preserved this word through the centuries and brought you to this specific point. So you would be sitting here in this room to hear from God's word today and be able to hear it explained. So what I'm going to ask is that that work happens, that you're able to hear what God wants you to hear from this passage specifically, and that I don't get in the way of that happening. But I'm going to do my best to hopefully work through this with you, help you understand what's going on, so we can see what God is teaching us from it. So let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll we'll jump right in. God, I thank you for your word. Uh, God, that it's timeless, that it does uh, speak into our lives and what we deal with daily. So I pray that you would use this message to be encouraging and helpful to us, that you would change our perspectives and our thoughts uh, based on this time that we can can read it together. In your name, amen. Have you ever gone into an art gallery, uh, or maybe you've looked at a a painting in uh, in a book, and you thought, okay, I don't really know what this guy's going for here, right? I see some colors, maybe I can figure out the object that's there, but I got no idea what this guy is aiming for with this particular painting. Uh, my wife, uh, I love my wife Katie, I've been married for, uh, for a number of years, and so I've spent about the last decade or so learning to appreciate art slowly. Uh, so as I've been working at that, uh, I was usually the guy who would walk into a gallery, 20 paintings on a wall, after about 20 seconds, I'm, I'm good to go, we can go to the next one, okay, that, that's enough covered there, I saw it, colors, good, let's keep going, uh, I'm hungry if nothing else, right? Uh, but I've slowly learned, after seeing many galleries and listening to my wife talk about these paintings for years, I've started to get a little bit of an appreciation. So as I look at a painting, you kind of keep looking at it, usually for a good while. Sometimes you move close, sometimes you move away, you kind of change your perspective a little bit. You start to notice more things about it. You start to really see maybe the effort of the artist sometimes in developing it. You can say, okay, finally I think a five-year-old maybe would not be able to paint the same painting. Okay, I think I believe that now, after looking at it really closely. There, there's a lot of effort here. I couldn't do that. Oh, okay, I see what's going on here now. Maybe you have a transcendent thought or moment there as you're looking at it, thinking about your own life and the painting, maybe the depth that's coming at you, and you start thinking, okay, there is more here. This is talking to me. This is saying something to me about my story. And so after a little while, by just changing my perspective a little bit, I've learned that there's a lot more there than initially. Now, I do the same thing exactly, right? I walk into the gallery, I'm going to stand there, I'm going to look at this art. Not a whole lot has changed in my actions, but really my experience, my motivation for doing it, and my appreciation have all changed merely because I have a change of perspective. So what we're going to look at this morning is from our text is we're going to look at 
uh, a text that's actually quite challenging to us. Uh, It's a passage that has been sitting weightily on me for several weeks. As I've had this passage intersecting with my life day in and day out, I've seen my own sin corrected at times by this passage. I've seen my own uh, shortcomings, my disbeliefs, knocked into this passage day after day. So as I preach this, this isn't the easy text. Sometimes there's easy text to preach. You're like, go love Jesus and go have great lives. And that's like, rah, that's like fun to be the lead cheerleader on that kind of sermon. Then there's sermons where you're like, wow, God is still hitting me in the face with this text. And so I'm trying to understand what this means in my individual life. Uh, and now here I'm up here trying to explain to you what that means. So we're going to work through this together, try to have that understanding, but I just wanted to say it's intersecting with my life, and I've been doing that for a number of days as well, praying for many of you by name, that as we look through this passage together, that you would find comfort in this and see what God wants to teach you in it. So the big idea from our passage of 127 that, that Matt opened with and Amy just read, the big idea of this passage is that we need to see all that we do in our daily lives, whether working hard at a job or working hard at raising our families, That would be totally pointless unless we know God is the primary actor. For our work to amount to anything and for our families to thrive, God has to act. God has to move. Or put another way, God's working is what makes your job successful and what makes your family flourish. So we need this perspective from God to change our own view of what's going on so that we can see what God wants in our work, our job sector, as well as through our family. So in our culture, we usually don't see these two things together, right? Sometimes we think about work, we think about family, and really, they don't have a lot to do with each other. There's like volumes that are spent on the idea of how do you balance, how do you work in these two spheres all the time, but then really, we don't have them do very much together, right? It's work on one side, family on the other. Probably the most that family sometimes intersects into our work is like if you have a really, really close relationship with someone at work, they say, so how's the family, right? That, that's like as deep as it goes. Ooh, that guy really cares about me. Okay, there we go. Let's, let's get into it. Or at home, right? Someone may ask in passing, so how's your job doing? Good. It's fine. Yeah, all right. Yeah, we had a meaningful conversation then about, about your work. Really, that's sometimes all that we really do with those two spheres together. Yet the psalmist in Psalm 127 brings together these two things in a single song. And he puts them in one stanza right after the other in close connection. First he talks about work or jobs. And then he talks about the family. And he points to both of those as requiring God's perspective in order to make them really work. So we're going to follow the same pattern this psalm has gone through and and tackle two huge topics in really a short amount of time. Talking about your work, job, life as well as some of what God says about family, and putting those together to really see how that perspective changes how we live our daily life, or really get through the daily grind that many of us get through on a day-to-day basis. So point number one, we're going to see work from God's perspective, which is unless the Lord works, your work is in vain. So in Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, we see this. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Or unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So in verse 1, we see these two conditional sentences that are arranged, if the Lord, if the Lord. The arrangement is if to say uh, that if the Lord isn't doing the work, then really all the amount of professionalism and effort and the things that people are good at can't even happen. They'll be vain and they amount to nothing. This verse is saying that unless God is doing this work behind the skilled workman, your efforts, your ambition, your skill, your professionalism, can't get the job done. 
A builder can build, but without God, it's totally in vain. It's worthless. It's meaningless. It's ineffective. The message translation of this text points to the idea that, yeah, yeah, builders, go build this thing. The best you're going to get is a shack. Watchmen, you know what you can do? You just might as well take a nap. That's what you're doing here with your efforts without God really working through what's happening. Then look at verse 2. kind of describes a little bit. You might hear yourself in here a little bit. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. So it really describes a person who's burning the candle at both ends. You might hear uh, this idea of rising up early. We've got an idea for that, right? You get rolling at 5.30, 5, maybe 4.30, maybe even earlier than that. Uh, crazy times of the day. As we do that, this is looking to the idea of, uh, with a metaphor, saying, okay, you rise early, almost as if like you rise from the dead. It's kind of a, a dead metaphor, but that's what he's saying. You've shifted from that time of sleep to now being awake again, and you do that really, really early. And his artistry, he kind of weaves that idea. So you have these people who are rising up early, and he kind of says, okay, then go all the way to the end of the day. These are the people who are going home late or go late to rest. Really, literally, it could be even sitting down to rest. So there's this rising in the morning, and then there's this sitting down to rest at the end of the day. You know that feeling. You've seen either your dad growing up, or you know your husband, your wife, when they come home, that feeling in that chair, right? That, and it's finally the day is done at that moment. This is what it's pointing to. It's saying there's people who are working very, very early on the front end of that. And there's people who are coming late at the very end of that. This could refer to that easy chair sitting back or even coming home to dinner really, really late. And as we come into that, he's saying that really this is unfulfilling. Look at that next phrase in in verse uh, 2. He says they're eating the bread of anxious toil. This is their sustenance, toil, anxiously. I mean, toil is not a neutral word by any means, right? It's a zapping energy, a fruitless labor. It's a, it's a word that brings out exhaustion, tiresomeness. So it's saying these people who are getting up early, getting home really, really late, maybe even late getting home to dinner, not able to enjoy it, just getting there at the end, burning at both ends repeatedly. There's no life. There's no energy. There's just toiling work. So the psalmist is clearly marking this as sin, as something that isn't right. It's not how humanity was made to live. So as we work long hours without intermission, with no stop, with no enjoyment, but merely toil all day long, we do this in vain. We think it's going to help us get ahead. We think it's going to accomplish so much for us. The psalmist says God's perspective on that is that it's vain. I mean, it's easy to see, right, just practically. If you work nonstop, you see your productivity wane. Right? There's lots of studies. We see this. After so many hours of nonstop work, you're actually not getting very much work done. So there's a, a practical element to that. But also on another, another level, right? Uh, aside from that, there's worthlessness. You're not really helping the company probably achieve their objectives at some point. Additionally, you're not really benefiting your family who you're supposed to be going to work and helping and providing for because you're so exhausted and spent. What's the benefit to them? So a contrast comes here in verse, verse uh, 2. It points to, okay, the Lord's the one that's supposed to be working. If you're just getting up early, burning yourself out, going through that, what's, what's the alternative? Well, he points to looking to God. He says, for he, meaning God, gives to his beloved sleep. So God's perspective really is, is that grinding is all we do and hope for if we work without God. Unless we are one of God's beloved, there's never rest. There's nothing that we can hope for 
except the gnawing need to keep working and keep doing more. So a bit of an allegory of sorts to kind of describe to you on on what this is like and and why he's describing this differently. So I went to college in a tiny little school in in the north woods of Wisconsin, about two hours north of Green Bay. In case you're wondering, there's nothing up there. But there was a small Bible college up there. So when I went there, uh, it was a campus, not a whole lot going on, but it did have on it an independent coffee shop called The Daily Grind. And, uh, you know, indie coffee shops, they got to have ironic names. They all seem to have that. So th- this one was fitting, and that's what it was called. So as I was thinking back over this, over my, last, uh, my first three years at college, to the best of my knowledge, I never set foot in this coffee shop. I'm a really avid coffee drinker, even more so probably in college. Uh, and during that time, I would either drink free coffee in the cafeteria, I'd make it in my room, all those kind of things, but I never went to this coffee shop. Then in my senior year, I don't really remember why, but I wandered over to this coffee shop. I said, all right, I got a little, a little less credits, a little bit more time on my hands. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in this place. It's here on campus. So I wandered in. Man, I got to tell you, it was amazing. It was like soft lighting. It was like relaxing music playing. It's just like amazing aromas of coffee coming in. I like worked it out. I figured out I can get like at the time apple cider for like a quarter or something ridiculous like that. I was like, I'll just drink apple cider the whole time. This will be, this'll be cheap. Uh, but you had this experience when you're in there. You're like, wow, this is totally different than what I'm getting in the library, what's happening in the student center, in all the classrooms. This is actually like an oasis, a place where I can get away from all that, read, reflect, and think along. And there's other people who apparently knew about this from like the first day there. So it was amazing. I was like, whoa, I can really go in here and get away from the daily grind by the experience in this coffee shop and think differently about what I need to do. That didn't make my test go anywhere, right? I had still had a test the next day. I had to study for it. I had to get it done. I had to still write that paper that's due tomorrow. Got to figure out a way to get through it. But in the moments in the four walls of this coffee shop, you're sort of feeling like, all right, like there's a different perspective. It's not quite the hustle and bustle, the strain, the difference of how it's going. This is what the psalmist is calling us to at the end of verse three, or verse two, excuse me, as he talks about, for he, God, gives to his beloved sleep. You might find it as an odd connection, right? He's talking all about work and labor and accomplishing things, and then he inserts this kind of weird phrase about sleep. Uh, Well, he's really using that to point to a theological statement to us about sleep. It is that sleep is not only for the weak. It's not something that you can live without. It's really something that's a gift from God, and it's to be received in faith. It's not to be used excessively in abuse or become the ultimate thing ever, but sleep is a gift God gives you. So as we labor and we're spinning and we're trying to get so much done, there's a point at which we need to see sleep for what it is. It's something that God gives us through this experience. I had a professor who said, said a, a statement over and over again that was hard to understand then, but I've, I've thought about it a lot more. He said, sometimes the godliest thing you can do is go to sleep. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do is go to sleep. As a sleep-deprived college student, I was like, I agree. This sounds like a really good idea. Uh, but as I thought about it more, I'm like, there's a lot of wisdom in feeling okay to sleep. Sometimes we fight against it so hard, and yet sleep is a means of fighting temptation, sometimes to get away from lust or anger or worry. Sleep is an antidote to that. It's something God gives us to fight those things. But even more than that, in this passage, we see sleep is also a declaration that God still still works after I go to sleep. And he's accomplishing what I cannot do, and he wants me to still have rest. We're saying, really, that as I work really hard all day, And then I can have a point where I relax and I go home and go to sleep at night. We're testifying the fact that it doesn't all depend on us. 
God is still working. He will get it done, what needs to be done, or it won't matter nearly as much. Sleep is also an affirmation that it's a gift from God so that we understand our life is supposed to be marked by that gift. It's something that God says is good for us to sleep. So that means even though we at times think our productivity and our exhaustion and our raging crazy schedules are what God wants and I'm doing good things, this passage points to the fact that no, really God is okay with rest. God himself rested. God is calling us to that. So as we believe that more, there's cases where we have trouble sleeping or we are caught up in our worries and we're unable to sleep, even insomnia instances. What we need to understand is that in many cases, that's about a failure to believe. Not in all cases. Clearly, there can be other factors involved in sleeplessness. But in a lot of cases, if we're caught up in worry, we can't get our minds to shut off at the end of the day, or we really can't stop ourselves from working, so we're working late, late into the night. The reality is is that's a, a faith issue. We're not believing that God can do it without us. We're not believing that we have to rest and sit with God. So that's something that we need to approach from a faith perspective, right? We have to repent of that. We have to believe God's promise of what he's doing through sleep. So a couple of quick questions to ask ourselves. In light of this perspective, does this mean we don't work hard or hustle uh, in our daily work? Of course not. Trusting God frees us, of course, to work hard as anyone with excellence and skill in our crafts. But... We work as those whose life doesn't depend on it. We are so much more than the labor we can produce or the level we can uh, achieve. God is calling us beyond this one obsession of work to other areas of responsibility, like our love of our family, our love of our church, our gospel community. Each of these things, we have to find some place where we're saying, God also has asked that responsibility on me as well. So I can't just merely say, by laboring, I'm pleasing God. Now, we think of trade-offs for stages of life or seasons, but the reality is that God has called us to all of these areas of responsibility. So we need wisdom from God to know what to do, right? Minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, week to week, quarter or semester to semester, right? As you go through that, these are hard questions. We should be praying to God, asking for wisdom and saying, okay, God, I'm going to leave this crisis at work. I've worked really hard on it for a number of hours, and now I'm going to go home, and I'm going to go... spend some time with my gospel community because I need those people to love on me and I need to show love toward them. So, God, I've worked hard as I can and now I'm going to leave. That should be what should be coming across our mind and making that decision. Or maybe in another situation, we're saying, all right, God, uh, I've noticed that my job is kind of taking me away from gathering on Sundays sometimes. And I'm not really sure what to do about that. I have to pay the bills, but I also want to worship with with God's people on Sunday. I'm not sure how you're going to do this, what we need to do, God. What's my next decision? But I'm asking you. I'm asking you to help me know what is the next decision. So hear me in this. I'm not saying any legalism here. I'm not saying by you showing up to gospel community, showing up on Sunday, that somehow Jesus loves you more. But I am saying he should be part of that conversation. You should be taking Psalm 127 into your family meeting, your schedule opportunities, and saying, okay, God, how am I going to make this work? What are the choices that I have to make? And we as a family or you as an individual are going to think through how God is going to rule over the time that you spend on your work and how you will find rest in that. All right, we make the transition then at this point uh, to verses 3 through 5. All right, he's talked about the work experience, job very closely, and now he moves quickly onto the family. So to get God's perspective on this, we see that family from God's perspective means children are a heritage from God. Not your burdens or your accomplishments, but a heritage from God. If you look at verse 3, 
it says uh, kind of in two parallel thoughts here. It is vain, uh, excuse me, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. So it substitutes fruit of the womb for children. At one point calls them a heritage, and the second line calls them a reward. Kind of developing the thought a little bit further. So let's try to understand what he means here. It says children are an inheritance. Okay, uh, that's a little bit of an odd phrase when you actually start thinking about it. Normally, when we think about an inheritance, right, it's parents who leave an inheritance to their children, not children who are the inheritance back to their parents. It's like the wrong direction of the analogy. So that immediately is pointing to us as something different that's happening here, counterculturally, the way that humanity normally works. It's saying that really children are something that God is giving to you. They're an inheritance, something that he has brought forward to you, a heritage indeed. Then that second line phrases it slightly differently, saying that this fruit of the womb or the children are reward. When we hear the idea of re- reward, we sometimes can think of uh, wages or something that you're given because you deserve it, you've done the right thing. But really, every time this word is used throughout the Old Testament, from, with God being the subject, it points to the idea of a grace, a gift. Something God has given to us, not because of who you are or what you've done, but children are a blessing in spite of who you are or what you've done that God is giving you. It is saying God is heaping the blessing and the reward on you when he gives you children. I'm going to move a little bit quickly here just to verse 4. Talk about the arrows that uh, Matt was talking about with the children's sermon. It says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. So here we have a simile comparison, right? He's saying, okay, you got arrows over here and a warrior and what they do. Yeah, somehow that relates to children in a person's youth. Okay, so what's the comparison? What's the point of connection here? Well, as we think about this, we might need to contemporize the concept a little bit. As, as much as we might know a little bit about bow and arrows, I did them, I think, a week in gym class or something like that. It's not really my thing either. But as you think about it, contemporize it a little bit. It goes like this, okay? Children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. okay. Children are like assets in the hand of a hedge fund manager. Children are like inculpatory evidence in the hand of a prosecutor. Or it's like JavaScript at the keyboard of a software engineer. That's what we're saying. Okay, we're saying this guy knows how to do something with this thing. All right? They can accomplish something through them. There is something to be done and make an impact right away. All right, you get this thing and you find it, you say, whoa, I can get something done here. We can accomplish some things. This is something great. Wait till you see what's going to become from this one thing. That's what he's saying in the comparison here with children. Look what these children can accomplish. Look at the impact we can have by having these children in our home and the time we can love and care for them. That's the comparison that the psalmist is making. Then in verse 5, he says, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So this uh, continues the the warrior metaphor, uh, and in context is a wisdom statement in the psalm, kind of fitting Solomon's mention at the very top of the psalm. So we have this wise statement. So you've got to unpack a little bit of culture to make this one make sense. This is probably the one that's the most obscure to understand maybe what he's getting at first. So he's saying it's a good deal for this, this man or this woman to have a full quiver. So you've got a quiver, right? Okay, think Robin Hood, the thing on his back that has all the arrows in it. Okay, that's what we're talking about, the quiver. So he's saying, okay, blessed is the man who carries all these arrows with him into battle. I mean, right? If you go into battle and you have a bunch of arrows, 
that's good if, unless, and much better to be the guy with a bunch of arrows in his quiver than the guy with like no arrows in his quiver or like not enough arrows in his quiver to go into battle. Those are both bad situations to be in, right? So that's the comparison he's making. He's like, okay, you have a lot of arrows. You're ready for battle, ready to go into it. And so he makes that comparison at the last phrase, talking about he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So this concept is the location of the gate uh, has two meanings. Either we have the point of uh, defensiveness of the city, right? That's the weakest part of the city. That's where they always put the army, like in all those castle movies and stuff, right? They always put the army right by the gate, so when they bust through, the army's there to, like, fight them. That's the same concept here, even when we're talking about a walled city of this time period. It was the weakest place. So you'd want, as a warrior, to have all these children with you who could stand at defense at the gate, all these able-bodied people to fight with you. It also was the place of legal proceedings and commerce. So as you can imagine yourself getting up in years and becoming the the really old guy who comes down to the gate to have business, or maybe somebody brings a legal dispute with you, you're going to want a bunch of kids with you to help present the evidence to make sure you're not taken advantage of in the gate to make sure they're with you. So that's our situation here. So it comes with a proverbial statement. It's not saying that somehow, look, if you have no kids, you're, you're screwed. You have no chance. That's not what it's saying. It's saying, look, this is the, the ideal. You're going to be blessed if you have children with you in these situations. So view some of the impact. These are just two quick examples of the impact you can have with children in your life. So we're going to kind of build off of those and understand a bit more of the implications, but hopefully the text at least uh, has come alive to you. I want to talk a little bit about how we think about this text and how it informs us as a church and as, as people here uh, around uh, the thought of children. If you've been around Seven Mile Road for like all of five minutes, right, you said, this place, they love children. Evidently, they're like everywhere, crawling on everything, running through everything. Um, but it's more than this. Really, <clears throat> our view on children is not supposed to be like a preferential disposition, like we like kids, you might like flannel. You know, those kind of things kind of go hand in hand. It's not that kind of a disposition. It's not even like a wishful hope, like... I'm a Bostonian now, so I have to think, like, every movie Ben Affleck in is, like, wicked awesome, even though there's evidence to the contrary, like, Ben Affleck movie, really? Okay, like, uh, it's not that kind of wishful hope. This is a decided decision based on the character of God and what he's told us about children. So we have to think totally differently about them, and that's why we're for them. There's some top-shelf philosophies that I'd say that were out there, things like um, antinatalism and Malthusianism are two ideas that are like, why would anyone study these things? They're kind of out there and obscure. But they come into like everyday lies that we hear day in and day out and can start to infiltrate our thinking. Philosophies and lies like, maybe it would be better off if this particular child over here or that one on the other side of the world, maybe it would be better if they'd never been born. You know what? That's such a terrible life they're living. Maybe it would just be better. Or they think, you know, there really are too many people in the world as it is. And, you know, it might be... Uh, more responsible or more loving to have like no children or maybe not very many children at all and that would really be the better outcome for our world these philosophies come at us many times where we think them without even passing it tv episode you watch it and you're like yeah totally i agree with that and you're like what am i saying okay these can happen in our life and they come out in our thinking and as we work through those what we have to do is we have to see these as anti-gospel thinking and need to repent of those as they seep into us, taking God's perspective for seeing the benefits that come from having many children in instances and even the presence of some children, uh, whether they're our owns, own or others. So perhaps your time at Seven Mile Road, you being around the kids' mayhem going on here, may be the biggest intersection of children in your week. 
That's your opportunity still to be a part of that, to speak into those kids' lives, to be praying for them. As you're a part of this body and able to talk to those children, you also have a chance to be uh, impacted and impact those children in a future way. So let's talk about some heavy truths from this passage, this final application or implications from this passage. Um, There's things that we bear in our lives, right, that we know pain, hurt, there's doubt and even fear of what these implications from this passage can mean. And this psalm gives us a heavy truth. But, you know, its tone is really a song. It's, it's a positive, uplifting thing to point our eyes Godward. So I want to spend a couple moments just talking about some of the difficult challenges we face when we talk about children and work. And I want to just briefly explain how the psalm can affect our thinking and change our perspective through these. So one of the things that we want to affirm as an application from this is that God opens and closes the womb in conception. It is God who is behind conception. So we can take all effort ethically, life-preserving, and listen to doctor after doctor. But God truly is the only one who can open the womb. He is the one who decides you'll have no children, or one child and no more, or four children and many more. All of that sits with the God of the universe. And we can make the appropriate responsible efforts and decisions about trying to conceive, but God is the sovereign over the womb and every square inch of the universe. That's what we affirm with this passage. Thus, any and all children that we do receive from God, they're a heritage, an inheritance that he's given us. If God does not give us any children or the number of children that we would like, he is still a good father who lovingly gives us what is best for us. And it's vanity to think that we can somehow conceive on our own and God would not be involved or that God isn't overseeing that. What vanity. No, God is behind all of that. So it's a declaration of faith that we make to affirm life at conception and that God is sovereign, both over infertility and a full quiver, as he gives us. Secondly, we affirm that our children are a true gift from God. The psalm points to the amazing joy of having the children we actually have. We've been given them. They're powerful in their impact. And they can do so much for God in the future. This is the belief of what it is to be pro-children in the church. There are hard days and seasons of parenting, loving our children due to sinfulness on their part as much as our own, right? Yet we believe God has blessed us with the specific children that he has given us. And in those cases, we have to trust that also God is sovereign over their hearts to do the work that he wants to do in them. And no amount of effort from us as parents can achieve the outcomes that we would like or make them in who we think they should be. So they're God's gift to us as they are for us to spend the time loving them and shaping them to the best we can for what God wants to do through them. And finally, going back to kind of our top part part about the work, we affirm the Lord... Uh, We affirm the Lord is who makes our work matter. We believe work is something that is not inherently evil but good. It's something we give our lives to perpetually, but we cannot do so ultimately. We can work hard, but not for wealth accumulation or self-security or identity. All of that ends up being the vanity that's talked about here. Instead, we need to work as one who knows that God is the one who blesses our work to make it successful, and we labor for a higher calling not looking for the next promotion, the career advancement, because I can tell you straightforwardly, I see it myself. Yeah, it just doesn't always happen. God doesn't always bring that about. 
and that's for my good. And when you look at that, you say, all right, God, if I was just living for that, it's not enough. I can't just spin my wheels for the accomplishment. I'll never get enough out of it. So in conclusion, as we think about getting up early to work tomorrow, right, you can do the same thing. So despite our best efforts of working hard tomorrow, there's a chance that you're not going to change the world. You're likely not going to get rich through your labors. You're going to probably just continue doing what you've been doing all along. That can be vanity. You're working hard to make enough money just to pay for the life you already have and you aren't already enjoying. That's vanity. Unenjoyable. Maybe you're wanting, hoping, trying to have kids, wanting to find joy in that future, only to be faced with setbacks, heartbreaks, and failures, leaving you seeing conception as vanity. Or maybe you have your children, and you're waking up early, children's cries for help or attention, only to be inhibited from enjoying the life of thinking, adult conversations, reading. You know what those setbacks are at times. And that can feel like the children are just a cost and a time suck that leave you exhausted, and that's the vanity. It's in each of these moments that we have, in those moments when our kids are exhausting us, in the moment when the doctor says again, I'm sorry, you didn't conceive, or in the moment when you're at work and you're saying, why am I doing this again, that we need to turn ourselves back to Psalm 127 and say, what is God's perspective? Who is over my life and telling me what needs to be done here? God is telling me as I work, he is working more so I can take rest. God is the one who gives children so I can come to him in both my fear and my sadness and my joy in conception. And as I'm tired and exhausted from these kids who can't seem to get anything right in their day, I'm saying, no, God is doing something here with these gifts of these children. It's this perspective that takes us from the daily grind to a daily find for how God is building in your work and how God is rewarding you in children. This week, you need to be looking for that daily find. What is God doing in your work? How is God blessing and rewarding you through these children? Let's pray. God, it's a a big ask. It's hard to uh, believe and act on these words in this text. But God, I pray we would all do serious business with with these words, evaluating, reflecting on our labors, the job and careers that you've given us, as well in the families that we hope to have or in the families that you have given us, God. And we ask that you would turn our thoughts to you. We would move from the daily grind to see your perspective, God, and trust you for the outcome.